please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 20. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Our friends, my topic this morning in a single study is the gentleness of Christ, the gentleness of the Son of God. Our friends, this is amazing. This is tremendous subject. The gentleness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the gentleness of the Son of God in the days of His flesh, in the time that He spent in this world experiencing similar things, buffetings, pains, temptations, testings, roughing up that we also face in some measure. His life in this world as the Son of God was no bed of roses. It wasn't an easy life. Just as our lives are born to trouble, so also our, His life was born to trouble. Perhaps we could say He had even more troubles. Definitely we could say. He had even more troubles than any of us. And yet, in the midst of difficult circumstances, difficult people, hard to get on people, provocation after provocation, personal troubles, pains, in the midst of it all, he carried himself with great gentleness of soul, meekness of soul, tenderness of soul, not weakness, friends. Gentleness spiritually in the Bible is not weakness, it's not timidity, it's not being soft-spoken, it's gentleness within, in the midst of turbulence without, carrying oneself in this way. This is amazing. This is the Saviour, friends. This is the Creator of all things, living gently among created beings. This is the one who is highest of all, the one who is above all, living, who is superior in a every way, living humbly amongst his creatures, living humbly amongst those who are inferior to himself. This is him, friends, in all his gentleness. This is what we are thinking about uh, this morning. May it be a help and a blessing to our souls. Now, the background to these words is actually the opposition of the Pharisees to Christ. You know it. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But the Pharisees, as you know, they had all these petty laws uh, about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was God's, uh, God's law, God's command. They were to set aside one day. But they had added all these things, extra burdensome laws uh, to, uh, to that one law. God said, let the Sabbath be for His worship, let it be set aside for Him. But here, the, the Pharisees, over time, had added these different uh, rules and regulations for the people, and so made the whole day a real burden for them. Not God's precepts, but man's precepts. In verse 1, we see that they were unhappy with Christ's disciples because they were plucking corn on the Sabbath day. And they pointed it out to him. They said, it's not lawful 
that you are doing this thing, your disciples are doing this on the Sabbath day. And Christ pointed out to them what David did when he and his men were hungry, how they went and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them. It was set aside only for the priests, and yet they ate it on the Sabbath day. And uh, he uh, pointed this uh, out uh, to them. And also then in verse 9, uh, probably on the same there, there was a, behold, there was a man which had his withered hand withered, and this was in the synagogue. There they were in a packed synagogue, and it seems as if the Pharisees had pushed forward to the front this man with a withered hand, and they're testing Jesus, and they want to find an occasion to accuse him, and so they push him forward, as it were, and they say, now, here is this man with this withered hand. Is it lawful is, to heal him on the Sabbath day? There's no compassion in there. There's no uh, feeling uh, for this man. This man, his withered hand, wasn't probably deprived him of work. It probably deprived him of uh, earning a living so he could support his family. He was in a very pitiful condition. But these Pharisees don't care. They don't care really. There's no concern in him, in them, for him and what his circumstances and for his healing. They, would, they should have said, "Lord, heal him. He needs help." But they were they were putting forward as a way to accuse him. And you remember Christ's irrefutable answer, and he said, uh, and I paraphrase: "If a man has only one sheep, and that sheep falls into the the pit on the Sabbath day, won't he?" Uh, rescue it? Won't he do all to save that one sheep that he has? Of course he has. It's a rhetorical question. Of course he's going to save that sheep. And uh, uh, the Pharisees were downfounded. How much more is a man of more value than a sheep, than an animal? And uh, they were dumbfounded. They, they had nothing uh, to say. And the Lord went on to say, it's lawful uh, to do good on the Sabbath days. Oh, when, when the Lord treated, spoke to them in this way, in, in a way they were uh, humbled and uh, publicly, you could say, humiliated and shown up uh, for their, uh, their wrong idea of the Sabbath. And they were incensed against Christ. They were mad against Christ. Verse 14 tells us, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against Him, how they might destroy Him. They were so angry with Him, because he had broken in their eyes, he hadn't broken the Sabbath, but in their eyes he had broken the Sabbath day and was teaching people to do that. And uh, he didn't fall in line with them, but also here they are embarrassed and humiliated and uh, shown up. And so he is very, they are very unhappy with him. Luke 6 uh, verse 11 tells us that they were filled with madness. They were infuriated with Jesus because of this, and so they sought to destroy him. <laughs> they sought to destroy him. They got together on the Sabbath day, the day when they should be doing good. They got together and planned together uh, to put Christ to death. But what was Jesus' reaction? For he knew what they were up to. And we see in verse 15, when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes uh, followed him. He uh, withdrew himself. He knew 
what they were up to. You could say that he, he, got, he had got them on the back foot when he had answered them in such a way. And perhaps one would have thought, well, now's your time, Lord. Now's your time. You've got them on the run. You've, you, they've been shown up for what they are. Now gather the crowds. Now build up a, a following for yourself. You can overturn these religious people and all that they are doing. You can overturn them. You can, uh, you can raise up the crowds against them. They'll be on your side. They'll be with you. They'll follow you. He doesn't do that. Instead, he withdraws himself uh, from that situation. He ev evades and avoids a further uh, confrontation. He doesn't stand up and fight his corner as he could have done and quite legitimately could have done. He doesn't gather the crowd and incite them against the religious leaders. He diffuses the situation by withdrawing his presence uh, from them. He withdraws and he went to another place, to this, the shores of Galilee, and great multitudes uh, followed uh, him there. And we read that uh, he healed all who needed uh, healing. And verse 16, and he charged them uh, who were healed that they should not make him known. He wasn't, uh, after everyone who was uh, healed, he said, don't tell other people. One person, he's, he said, go and tell your family and what God has done for you. But these ones, don't say anything. Keep it to yourself. He wasn't after public acclaim. He didn't want the, those healed to broadcast their healing. He, he wasn't after publicity. He didn't want them to come by their own uh, strength and uh, make him king. He was, uh, his, his time was not yet come. Well, Matthew sees all this behavior of Christ. And remember, Matthew is writing his gospel to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew, when he observes Christ and the way he's dealing with the Pharisees and the way he's withdrawn himself from this, the situation and diffused that situation, he interprets that. And he sees this as a characteristic of the Messiah. And he says, uh, the, the, well, the Jews, we, you know, were expecting a Messiah who was going to be some great political leader, some great conqueror, a powerful leader, somebody who would do great exploits and the world would uh, attract, uh, uh, would be attracted to him. He would gain, as it were, universal attention. This is the kind of Messiah that had got into their minds. This is the idea that they had of the coming Messiah. And Christ is the absolute reverse of this. He's not like that at all. He's not the showy, outgoing person that uh, they, they expected. And Matthew points this out uh, to them, and he says, it's actually this kind of behavior, this kind of withdrawing himself, this kind of gentle dealing, is actually messianic. This is what the Messiah was meant to be like. And so he quotes uh, from uh, Isaiah 42, uh, and in verse 18 we read here, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. 
Matthew is pointing out, as he observes. It's not the other way around, friends. It's not as if Jesus knew this particular scripture. He knew it, and he was trying to implement it in his life. Christ was going about his life, doing what he does. And, and Matthew interprets that and sees that and says, this is typical. This is in accord with what the prophecy of Isaiah said the Messiah would be like. And so this is really what I want to look at uh, this morning, the, the gentleness, really, of Christ. A bruised reed shall he not break. And uh, verse 19, he shall not strive nor cry. These are the main uh, verses. This is the main idea. Though Matthew quotes uh, 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 a longer piece here, the main thought here is in those two uh, verses, verses, 18, verses 19 and 20. So I have just five points on the gentleness of Christ. And firstly, and we've touched on this a little bit already, but the gentleness of Christ in the presence of his enemies. The Pharisees, as we said, were all in a rage against Christ. Plans were being drawn up to murder him, and knowing this, he withdraws from the situation. He moves uh, from this hotspot to the shores of Galilee. But it's not a flight of fear. He's not afraid. He's not afraid to die. He's not afraid what man can do to him. But he knows his time is not yet come. There's still work for him to do. There's still people for him to reach. And he's not going to stoke the fire uh, before the time. You remember when it was his time in the Garden of Gethsemane and the temple soldiers came uh, to arrest him. And there he went out to meet them. And he said, whom do you seek? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And said, I am he. And they all fell down backward. <laughs> and then uh, they got up again. And they, uh, he, he allowed himself to be taken. He was not afraid to die. But he, he was wise. And here we see, even in the midst of murderous intentions, he is able to hold himself. He's not shaken in his mind at the threat of, to his life. And yet, at the same time, we have to say, he is not indifferent to life. He, uh, he knows uh, that uh, self-preservation is a part of life. It's a feeling that is common to us all to preserve our lives. Sometimes it would be foolish to go headlong into a situation and think, well, I am a Christian. God will protect me. God is sovereign. He can do anything. Well, sometimes wisdom is needed, friends. Uh, we know even the Apostle Paul, when, they were, when the, the plans were put into place and the message went up to Caesarea where Paul was uh, under, under arrest, and uh, they said, Bring, let Paul come down to Jerusalem. But they planned to ambush that, that journey down and to kill him along the way. And when Paul found out about it through his nephew, well, he told the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman uh, soldier, and the uh, plans were made to move him to a different place overnight. That's wisdom. He didn't say, yes, I'll go. God will protect me. That would be foolish. What about uh, Luther, when after the Diet of the Worms? When he, came, when he was on his way back, he was actually kidnapped for his own good, and he was put into a castle. But again, uh, to preserve his life. And then there's William Tyndale, also 
translating the, the scriptures uh, into English for the common person, the common people to read. And he, his life was in trouble. His life was in danger. And he had to flee uh, England and go to Belgium and to Europe, the continent, to work, to save his life and carry on the work. That's wisdom, friends. And so also we see here uh, with Christ, he withdraws uh, himself. But he didn't run. He's not frantic. He's not perturbed. He's not discomposed in his going away. He peacefully retires, calm and serene, even in the face of adverse circumstances. There's no noise in his soul as he goes. But secondly, the gentleness of Christ in the midst of immense labor. And here we see uh, how uh, after he left, that uh, he went to the shores of Galilee, and uh, crowds uh, followed him. And people came from all different places, uh, Mark tells us. A great multitude came to him on the shores of Galilee. And he healed many, so much so that people were pressing in upon him. It's as if people really just wanted to get to the front and to touch him and to get some of that healing virtue that went out from him. And people were pushing here and pushing there. I'm sure it wasn't like, it was a bit like that, rather than perhaps orderly and like a, a GP surgery. I don't think it was quite like that, all of them waiting, you know, patiently in the queue and twi twiddling their thumbs, waiting for their turn to come. No, I'm sure that everyone wanted to be as near and were afraid the opportunity is going to go. Soon he's going to say, that's enough, and, and, and they, he would depart, and the opportunity would be gone. So there's all this like, commotion and clamor to get to the front. I'm quite sure some, some of that was there. Everyone clamoring for his attention, desperate to touch him. And so much so, we read in, in Mark that he had to resort to a, a boat and, and to teach to the people from the boat because they were all just crowding around about him. Well, friends, such attention, such uh, would have disturbed us. If crowds were, were, were following us and uh, continually, uh, at our, uh, uh, continually near us and demanding things from us and all eyes being continually set upon us, well, we would find that quite disturbing. We would find that flustering. We would probably be agitated in ourselves by these things. We all value our private space and our personal time, time to myself. That's enough. <laughs> I give you an hour. That's enough. But here we see Christ, he's not like that. This is his mission. People are his mission. He's come to teach them. He's come to, to touch them. He's come to heal them. He's come to demonstrate uh, the grace of God. And with gentleness of spirit, he goes about his work. There's no impatience in him. There's no feeling harassed by others. There's a gentle mean to him. Grace is seen in everything that he does. There's no frown upon his brow. Oh, not another one. Is this the last one? The disciples said, will probably say, oh, let him go. Send him back home. They did. Oh, the, the crowds, it's time for them to go home and find. Now you feed them. <laughs> he had time, even weary himself. Every healing costing him. But he was gentle still with every soul. Oh, this is glorious. This is our glorious Savior, friends. You know, when I was in China, uh, the, the, the 
students, university students, they still thought, oh, you come from England? English people are gentlemen. <laughs> English people are gentlemen. I said, well, it's a bygone day. <laughs> it's, it's not quite the same today. It's, uh, it used to be gentlemen, but their idea, you know, the pinstripe suits, the umbrellas, you're walking along, they've still got that idea in their mind. All Englishmen, I like that, all Englishmen are gentlemen, polite, courteous, gentle in their dealings with others. Well, that was really a bygone age, isn't it? But it was, was it real? Was it real, that gentlemanliness? Wasn't it down to etiquette? Wasn't a lot of it put on? Wasn't a lot of it just for show or training, outward training in these things? But here we have a real gentle man in Christ. A real gentle soul, a gentle, per a patient, courteous person in him. But then thirdly, we see the gentleness of Christ uh, also in his unostentatious life and his ministry. If you look at his life, friends, from beginning to the end, and there's that absence of the flamboyant, there's an absence of the flashy, there's an absence of the tinsel of life. There's nothing like that. He's not out for show. He's not out, as it were, just to impress the people. Oh, friends, there's this absence of it when you read through the Gospels. Look at verse 16, we mentioned it. He charged them that they should not make him known. He didn't, wasn't after that public attention. The whole of Christ's life, friends, is marked with this characteristic. We're thinking uh, these days about the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God into the world. But how quietly he came into this world. Oh, there was a choir of angels, it's true. But they only sang to the, uh, to the shepherds. How few people knew that the Son of God had come into the world. How few people were aware of it. He comes into this world almost unnoticed. Almost uh, unnoticed. There's no royal proclamation from the palace. King Herod even doesn't even know. He's stunned when the wise men say to him, where is the king? He is born king of the Jews. He doesn't know. He's come in in this gentle, quiet way. You would have thought the bells would have chimed from every place uh, when he came in. You would have thought there'd be fireworks. Instead, friends, there's this uh, relatively quiet entrance into the world. And you look at those hidden years. Oh, so little is said about obscurity. Growing up there in that obscure village of Nazareth with those poor uh, parents, and with uh, that occupation, uh, that uh, carpenter's uh, occupation, that's all he had. We don't know anything about it. It's hidden away. Then you look at his public ministry, and again he carries it out in the same spirit. He appears in this world, not as a king to be served, but as a servant. We have it even here, verse 18. Behold my servant. He takes upon him the form of a servant. And as a servant, he carries himself throughout his public uh, ministry. He mingles with the lowest of the low. He mingles with the lowest in society, the despised, the outcast of society, the rejected of society. And he deals 
gently with those souls that are come his way, those who are despised by others, he befriends, and he speaks the word of grace to them. Has no man condemned thee, O prostitute? Has no man condemned thee? Neither do I go and sin no more. This is him. This is how he deals with souls. We gently, verse 19 says, he shall not strive nor cry. The word strive there means wrangler. He shall not, this is not talking about open air preaching. He shall not strive. He shall not, you shall not hear his voice in the streets. But it's speaking about he won't be a quarreler. He won't be somebody who is contentious. The Messiah. He's not going to be somebody who's going to be whipping up and stirring up the crowds in the public uh, to rise in rebellion against their leaders. That's not the kind of person he's going to be. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. His sermons, friends, <laughs> were, we could say even uh, quite gentle sermons. He's no declaimer. He's not uh, harassing the people. He doesn't bark at the people in his preaching. He doesn't harangue the people. He teaches the people. He preaches to them. Yes, sometimes he has harsh words for the Pharisees, but they needed that. But when he was speaking to the general public and the, the common people, he was, his words were very gracious words. He, here is the the, the speaker who is not an ambitious orator, is not after the praise and adulation of the people, but he speaks to them as, as if wanting to just get the message across to them. And so he plucks up uh, in illustrations from everyday life to reach out to them. And so the common people heard him gladly. This is how he was. He didn't bark and shout at people, but he called them to repentance. And then the tender way that he dealt with people, verse 20, a bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. That speaks about his tenderness in dealing with souls. A broken reed, well, they used to use reeds apparently for musical instruments. But if it was broken, well, it was good for nothing. Throw it away, put it on the rubbish heap. But not with Christ. He says, a broken reed he won't throw out, and uh, the uh, smoking flax uh, he will not uh, put out. And uh, here we, he will not quench the, the smoking flax the, as the lamp uh, wick, and uh, it was a strip of, of, of linen, and when there was just a little bit of oil on that linen, well, it would uh, burn very dimly, and it would smoke, and it would be on the verge of going out, and perhaps people would just leave it to go out, but Christ, the Messiah, part of his work would be not to put out those works, to deal with souls which are weak and at the end, as it were, of themselves and of life and do them good, fan them into a flame again. And this is what he does. With great tenderness, he deals with the frail and the delicate life. Even with us, isn't it, friends? We are broken people. Really, we are broken people, broken by sin. But he deals tenderly with us, not as our sins deserve. Oh, have you, don't you think about it, friends? 
for your sins deserved and my sins deserved and how God should have treated me and ought to have treated me and yet he didn't. He ought to have come down like a ton of bricks upon me because that's what I deserve. But he didn't treat me like that. He treated me with gracious words. And we were stunned. Lord, why? Why like this? That's the way he, he is. He, he heals the broken hearted, the weak in circumstances, the weak, those who are weak perhaps because there are overmuch trials in their life or they were overwhelmed by the difficulties that they are passing through at this stage in their life. Oh, friends, he will give you more grace. He will help you. He will be with you in those trials. Perhaps some of us are weak in body and the powers of our youth are not there as they were before. And that's a great cause of trouble and anxiety to us. And we feel perhaps life is ebbing away. Oh, the Lord will uphold you. The Lord will keep you. He won't break you. He will deal tenderly according to your situation. He will accept still what you do for him, even though it's not as outward and as powerful, as vivid as it was in your youth. Some people are weak in intellect, in the sense that they cannot grasp the, the, the things of God as they used to, or, or as they'd like to. And they're slow learners. Oh, the Lord will teach you as a slow learner. He will teach you repeatedly again and again until you get it. Perhaps some are weak in the faith in the sense that they're new believers and you just come to know Christ. Well, he won't, he won't push you and rush. He will treat you according to where you are. He will help you. He will deal gently with you. He will teach you day by day. Oh, this is the Savior, friends, that we love and that we serve. This is how he still deals with people in this tender way. But then we must move on. His life, of course, his death on Calvary's cross. Oh, how gently he departs amidst the barrage of cruel words and ringing in his ears, taunts, cutting words, hurtful words are spoken to him. Provocation after provocation. If you are the Son of God, if you did this. And yet, in the midst of all these things, he bears them all. There's not a word of retaliation that comes from his lips. Hear what he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And again, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. This is him. This is the Son of God. Learn of me, he's saying as well to us, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Learn of me. Then you go to the resurrection three days later. Again, there's no fanfare. He rises silently as a word from the dead. There's no everyone waiting outside the tomb, waiting for it to happen. He just rises. Perhaps you would have thought, oh, if Christ showed himself rising from the dead, that would have convinced everyone. That would have been a great opportunity, uh, a great Photoshop missed. Oh, what a chance. But uh, not the Lord. He's not, that's not the way that uh, he works. The sight of the risen Christ is reserved for his people alone. But then also you could think about the ascension. His ascension back into heaven. Again, it's a relatively quiet affair. 
Yes, there were, uh, there were a few hundred people there with him on the mount, but that's such a small figure for such a great event. Such a tremendous event. By today's standards, it's very, very small. You know, when the world, when the rocket takes off from Kennedy Space Station, you know, lots of people watch it around the world on TV. Everyone, many people still are so interested in a rocket going into space. Here is the Savior going up, ascending into uh, to heaven itself, and the numbers are quite small. But, oh, friends, it all speaks to us of him who is uh, gentle from beginning uh, to the end. And then I move on, uh, just two more points. The gentleness, very quickly, the gentleness of Christ is also also demonstrates his special connection with God. How do we know Jesus is from God? How do we know that he's on this divine mission to show judgment, to teach the Gentiles uh, justice and the way of God? The miracles, of course, confirm these things, but also you see this true gentleness throughout his life. Oh, friends, when you think about the world, how silently it is uh, sustained from day to day. God is working. It's not just happening of its own natural accord. God is sustaining and keeping this world day after day, month after month, season after season. It's God who's doing it. And yet, it's so silent, it's so quiet, it's as if it's happening naturally. And yet God is behind it. God is the one. Somebody said, uh, there's scarcely a sound is heard where God's hand is most manifest. And it's true. You remember what the Lord said to Elijah, what happened to Elijah, uh, probably there on Mount Sinai. The Lord said to him, go forth, stand upon the mount, and then behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And the Lord, then the Lord spoke to Elijah. A still, small voice. This is him, friends. This is how God often works. Christ, he he must be of God. He must be from God. But as could say in the words of that blind man, for no man can carry himself with such gentleness throughout all these things unless he be, unless God be with him. But then finally, uh, the gentleness of Christ will one day win the confidence of the world. And we see this in verse 21. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. Philip Doddridge, pastor, commentator uh, of old, he said, this gentle and gracious administration shall cheer mankind in so sensible and irresistible a manner that the Gentiles shall confide in his illustrious name. In other words, Christ by his uh, gentleness, by his ways, by his manners, by his gracious dealings, will win people to himself. This is uh, how he will, he will work, by winning souls. Julius Caesar, different story. Julius Caesar got a name for himself, got a claim, got the praise of the people. He did it by conquering Gaul. 
and in the process, slaughtering thousands of people. Muhammad, Islam, how is it conquered, friends? It's conquered by the sword. Convert or die, that's how it began. Convert or die. Christ conquers by love. Christ conquers by winning the affections of the people. Christ conquers by drawing people to himself. They want to serve him. They want to follow him. They love him. They're drawn to him. This is how God works. This is why we belong to Christ. This is why we follow him and we trust in his name. Oh, friends, do you trust in this Savior? All of us trust something. Our affection is uh, entwined around something or other, some object or other outside of ourselves. The question is, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Christ alone is worthy of our trust. Look at his character as we've tried uh, to speak about it this morning. Look at his work. Look at his love. All these things commend themselves to your attention and are saying to you, trust in me. The Lord is saying, this is what I'm like. I'm worthy of your attention. I'm worthy of your trust. Believe in me. Put your hope in me. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In fact, this very verse precedes our text, uh, the chapter rather. It's in uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His love, friends, draws us to himself, that combination that is in him alone, power and goodness, holiness and mercy, draws us uh, to the Savior. Do you trust him? Oh, friends, if you never trusted Christ before, go to him this morning and tell him you do, repenting of your sins. But great gentleness, are we believers here this morning? This is a fruit for us as well. We admire it in Christ. We love it. Oh, we, uh, we think it's awesome, but it's also a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit of God is working in each one, uh, each believer. Are you pursuing it? Is it on one of the things that you pray for in life? Lord, make me gentle. Exercising it wherever you are, in the office, in the home, under provocations. All these situations are there to test us and to help us to achieve some measure of gentleness in our ministry, in our dealings with people, in our conduct? Is there a winsomeness about us, friends, as believers? Some kind of winsomeness, something about us that draws people not to ourselves, but to our Savior. Well, may the Lord help us in these things. Let's close by singing our final hymn, number 450. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. 450.